Let's get started. This, here's the music coming in. Okay. City on the Edge. City on the Edge. City on the Edge. City on the Edge podcast. City on the Edge. From Albuquerque, New Mexico. Stories of one southwestern city. City on the Edge. With Mike Smith and Ty Bennett. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's good. How are you doing, Mike? Pretty good. Pretty good. I just turned 40. Wow. That's awesome. I tried to go to your party and then I had car trouble and yeah. then you went home early because your kid was. I didn't go home early. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't even think it was going to start till nine. You were out of there by like eight thirty. Oh, we left. Yeah, it started at five thirty. Anyway, um, um, and then I came by to bring you a gift and your house was like shuttered and dark at nine at night. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put the kids to bed. It was just yeah, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's what happens when you turn forty. You I just, guess. Yeah. Uh, stop. Yeah. Being able to stay up after. Yeah. Nine p.m. So well, I good job, man. That's a that's a long time to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. Is. So far, so life good. is brutal. You know. I think it's uh, technically <laughs> midlife, right? Yeah. Crap. Maybe a little oh. past middle. No, I think you're good till like forty-five. Then, you then, so? then you're then you can talk about midlife. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's where you can no longer say that you're young. Can we so. redefine youth just over and over again? As it as it incrementally recedes. I think that's what the baby boomers have been doing. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure the forty is the new thirty. Okay. Thirty is the new twenty. Okay. The new ten. 10 yeah. Is the new just a baby. Sure. I see spry fifty-year-olds that seem youthful and they're oh, doing yeah. yoga and. My mother's in her sixties and she's seems. Pretty, pretty vivacious and everything, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, anyway, let's happy see. birthday. What else? Um, should we talk about some New Mexico news to start with? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, let's see. Should we start with Has the there been any news? story? I don't think there was news this week. No, I think everything no just happened. Everything fine. just stopped. It was normal. <laughs> um. Well, there was news. Oh. Actually, I had to go way back for this one oh, okay. um, because it's so absurd. Oh. It's it's wonderfully absurd that I went all the way back to March 24th for this story. Uh, it's titled, UNM Students, Smelly Trees Are a Distraction. Oh, man. A University of New Mexico student claims a cluster of trees on campus are stinking up the place, and he wants them gone. But the university said the trees aren't going anywhere. It's very, very strong, said UNM student Lorenzo Anzalone. It's hard to describe, said UNM student Katie Lee. But once someone smells it, they likely won't forget it. It just comes inside your nose like that's all you can breathe, and you're surrounded by the smell, Anzalone said. The strong stench comes from a group of trees known as Bradford Pears. Huh. A group of about ten of the trees have lined the north entrance of Zimmerman Library at UNM for about a decade. Um, anyway, more people yeah. complaining about the trees. UNM's like, uh, UNM grounds and landscaping manager Willie West said the school has no plans to get rid of Willie. them. Yes, we have a groundskeeper, Willie, at UNM. Um, so there you go. What do you wow. think? Smelly I, trees at UNM. I guess cry me a river, student. Like, I, <laughs> I, hope, you're, I hope it makes you sneeze all the time. Have you ever smelled these trees? No yeah, I mean, and didn't, we, didn't people call them, like, the semen trees? That's their... You know? uh, I mean, they had yeah. a distinctly... Yeah. I was surprised that, that that was... Um, <laughs> well, I guess they probably couldn't mention this on KR, KRQE. Why? Why? Because the they're run trees. by Puritans? You can't mention I, bodily fluids or something? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, these trees are, are famous, <laughs> like nationally, or maybe even internationally famous oh, really? for smelling kind of like semen, apparently. Yeah. There was a, there were news stories about this a while ago. There was a round of stories about this when we were oh, yeah. in school there. Wasn't there? I seem um, to remember this. I remember people talking about it. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I always thought of them as, as smelling like the grease trap at a oh. restaurant. Oh, interesting. Um, huh. Maybe that's just because my experience with, with semen is, and smelling it is, is not as yeah. much as others. But it, to me, it always smelled like when I, was, when I worked for a restaurant, I was the busboy and I had to right. go haul out like buckets of right. grease and dump it into a, like this horrible grate Ew. in the parking lot. Oh, it just had this wafting smell. So gross. And that, to me, the, yeah. these Bradford trees smell yeah. a little bit like that. But it's, it's not that is unpleasant. or anything. Yeah, I mean, look. I want to. This was in the Daily Lobo, right? This was a letter to that. Oh uh, no! This is this is actually KRQE's oh. um, coverage of the coverage Daily Lobo letter. Of, yeah, I want to write a letter in in the voice of one of the trees complaining about how that kid smells. You know, <laughs> I mean, because give me a break. Like all the things there are to get indignant about and write to an editor about and raise awareness about the smell of trees. Yeah, give me a break. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that person's not very cool. Um. But, but, I mean, yeah, sure. Some trees smell less good than other trees. All right? Great story. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, there it is. All right. And uh, you had one It is well. funny, though. It is funny. Oh, do I? Let's see. What were we going to talk about? Um, uh, I thought I was going to get shot last night. That was kind oh. of a news story. Not again? Well, I was sitting in my front room writing, and all of a sudden there were just gunshots in the street. Oh, yeah. There were two of them. And uh, a neighbor of mine had just been, like, shot at in traffic a couple of nice. days before. And so I, I moved to the living room and I wrote from there. Yeah. So what did you Albuquerque, find out what the story man. there um, was? No, I mean I peeked outside and I didn't see anybody, but it was definitely somebody kid? firing a gun twice in the street in front of my house. Were and your kids at home? No, they weren't oh, that good. time, so that's yeah. good. But um, I don't know. I just get tired of this kind of. I yeah, I've woken up to gunfire a few times yeah. in this city. Yeah. Uh, the last place we lived over on Seventh Street, hmm. there was one night where there were multiple shots, oh, squealing terrifying. tires, and things going on. We. Called the cops, and the yeah. cops, of course, showed up about 20 minutes later. Oh, man. Of course, when yeah. it's over, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I did have another story. What was it? Let me see if I can... Oh, um, UNM. Let's see. We were going to talk about uh, the Department of Justice. Okay. This is also from the Daily Lobo, which, you know, now that we don't have the Albuquerque Tribune anymore, and yeah, the alibi doesn't have a news section, and, you know, it's, it's very... The Daily Lobo does some good work. They, they, they've you know? come up in the world, I think. Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. they've... Uh, they've gone to um, online only oh, for the, most days of the week. Really? Yeah, oh, you know that's that? not so daily. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, this is from the Lobo. It says, On Friday morning, the Department of Justice revealed their findings regarding UNM's handling of sexual assault cases, saying the university is not up to code because of confusing policies and outdated procedures. Mm-hmm. But at a press conference later that day, university officials emphasized that there is more to the issue than the DOJ report suggests. And, you know, they're doing a big survey trying to, to focus on this. But, I mean... You know, there's there's some problems. Yeah. The, the university, yeah, let's see. Um, the university's strongest objection is to the investigation's conclusion that UNM is a hostile environment, Frank said, noting the yeah. fine print within the report. You'll note that the DOJ's definition of a hostile environment is that one event happens on that campus. By that definition, virtually every university in America is a hostile camp- uh, oh, okay. campus, he said. I wonder if that's legitimate. Yeah, I know. You know, people are always... But, I mean, I think that's... On one level, I think that's the wrong response. You shouldn't be like, there's you not a problem. You totally defensive right, about it. Right, right. Yeah. Instead be like, oh, yeah, obviously it's a problem on this campus because it's a problem everywhere. Right, right. You know, like, I mean, I think, you know, it, if I were ever to find myself as like the president of a college, which oh. that'll never happen because it's not a gold mine in <laughs> any way, uh, you know, um, but I, I don't see like what good like allowing frats to exist on campus would be like yeah. so, so many of the rape stories that I've heard from right. UNM are connected to the frats on campus, yeah. you know, horrifying stories Sigma about, Alpha, Epsilon for about, years. 
um, yeah. there's a particular offender until Over they and over. got kicked off. Man, female friends of mine have told me some of the worst stories, some of the yeah. hor- most horrible things about being like brought to star basketball players right. as like offerings, you know, like oh, and, yeah. and left alone in rooms, basically locked in, you know. I mean, Jeez. just horrifying personal stories, you know. And, and that sort of thing is like, you know, promoted by that. It's a culture of, day right, ra- right, of right. rape and binge drinking. They you should know? sever. I think the university should sever all ties with camp, with, uh, yeah, with fraternities. You want to have a dumb culture. group where you get together and binge drink into idiocy? Right. Like, I mean, do it on your own time. You're not going to be sanctioned you know, by the university and have a space for it. In you know? no way affiliated with campus. You know, I understand that most of the, the, frater- the frats over on frat row are actually right. on private land, but uh-huh. um, there's still some sort of university God. connection. I have no patience for it, really. I, you know, I taught English at UNM for a lot, yeah. a lot, and a lot of people would write papers about how much they love their frat brothers and all this stuff and everything. And like, I recognize we all sure. want community. We all look for that. No, and so I think on. that's important and that's yeah. positive. But but to grab people when they're at such a young, impressionable age and make the community that they're a part of just all about just like self destruction and right. you know drinking to you know moronic states and uh, right. you know taking advantage of women, viewing women as objects, just like. It's, you know, what, why is that sanctioned at all? Yeah. You know, and, and it's yeah. like, it's not good for the people in it, for the, the members of it. I mean, the suicide rate is there. I mean, like, you, oh. you hear stories of, of uh, suicides from within those. and From within the frats? Within the frats. There was a guy, uh, like, three or four years ago, like, you know, it, and I'm sure there's other stories, too. But mm. it's just, you know, it's just a dark culture. It's not, it's not like Animal House. It's like, it's like these people have problems, you right. know, yeah. even as they are being groomed to be the next well, generation the of political yeah, people. Yeah, and having certain attitudes reinforced. Oh, man. Ways not... of looking at the world. Anyway, I'm, I'm a jaded cynic. Well, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, why don't we just go straight to 1882? All right. Think? Let's <laughs> do something a little lighter. Although I did like that. Yeah, you did have another story. but, but We yeah. do have another story, yeah. but now I'm worried that it's maybe a little too dark. Oh, okay, we're um, ruining the whole. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's all right, go 1882. to 1882 where a man got butchered by a train. Oh, there. thanks for <laughs> lightening things up, Ty. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so as you know, I've been doing this uh, this day in 1882 um, on the Facebook feed, and soon I'm going to be tr- getting that onto its own blog as well. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Um, this is uh, April 27th. 1882. The title of the article is Butchered by a Train. A gentleman who arrived from Bernalillo yesterday gives the particulars of the killing of a man by the southbound train night before last. He says that a man who had been working on the Atlantic and Pacific Road was walking on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe track a short distance above Bernalillo at about 8 o'clock when he was run over and killed by a train. He says there was no headlight on the engine at that time. The man was dragged along the track about the length of 12 rails and was cut into 50 pieces. The remains were gathered up and put into a barrel. The coroner's inquest was held and the butchered corpse was buried in the barrel near the track. Jeez. Buried yeah. in the barrel? That's how, that was the standard protocol back then? <laughs> put yeah. him in a barrel? Well, I think that's what... I mean, people still get hit by trains all the time. Yeah. I think that what I find sort of notable about this is the, uh, the level of detail. Mm. Cut yeah. into 50 pieces, dragged 12 rails worth, and then all thrown into a barrel and then buried yeah. by the track. Yeah. I think that tells you a little bit about the difference between the world of 1882 yeah. and today. Oh, man. What a what a weird philosophical thing to think about, about deaths that are so remote in the past. Like, are they tragedies when they're so long ago and no one survives that, like, yeah, no, knows I mean, that I, they're affected by there's it? There's not even a name for this guy. Yeah. Again. Um, do we grieve for the victims of the Trojan War? I mean, like, <laughs> do we, like... You yeah, know, it's it's such a weird thing, you know. Like I, I think about this. Uh, t- Joseph Wood Crouch in his book, uh, "This Desert, the Desert, a Desert Year," maybe it's called "The uh-huh. Desert Year." Um, 
where he just writes about, you know, looking at his backyard in Tucson over the course of a year. Um, he talks about the many and the few and how, like, you know, it's really sad when, like, a whole species is wiped out in an area. But if just one dies, like, the species is okay, yeah, you know? like right. and and. <laughs> And uh, and it's just like just the weird thoughts that you have. And then after time passes, is it even sad at all? A sparrow died ten years ago, you know. Right. Like a person died a hundred years ago. Like dude, yeah, right. It, and uh, yeah, no no name given. Yeah, um, totally anonymous. Yeah, I do. Uh, uh, I mean, it still is sad. And I think if you were to research it enough and you were yeah. to find out the details and stuff, you could well you know, it, see it, it in a movie or something. You know? It 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 points to. I mean. Like I said, the, the level of detail about the actual event yeah. is surprising to me because, yeah. uh, you know, today you would read that a man got hit by a train right. and that would probably be all that you read. Yeah, you wouldn't true, read yeah. that he was cut into 50 pieces. Well, didn't they used to put people's addresses in, in the paper for every story too? They'd be like, mm. Mrs. So-and-so of, you know, 917 oh. Campus Boulevard, you know, like, yeah, they, they would, Sometimes they, I remember them that. doing that, but yeah, that's. What I'm so, in those. What, what's interesting to me is um, uh, most of the stories about crimes in these uh, mm-hmm. in these old papers have that same level of detail. I mean, they get really into anything involving like a fist fight. Interesting. You know, they don't just say there was an altercation. They're like, this guy came in wow. and he was talking a bunch of you know nonsense, right, and this right. other guy said, "Shut up, or I'm going to hit you with my hatchet." And then he <laughs> hit him with his hatchet. You know, and then they dragged oh, him off. Man. Um, and wow. I. I Wonder what that says about the difference between the, uh, sure. the mentality of that time and the, the mentality of this time. Yeah, I think you know there was yeah maybe a little bit of bloodlust, a little bit of yeah desire for that. I mean, you know, I don't think we've escaped that completely in modern times, but right, like you could, you have you have to go to like special websites now to That's see that true. stuff yeah, or yeah. To read it. So yeah, now it's like see Kurt Cobain's you know suicide photos. Right. I'm not clicking on this. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to see this. And whoever does, come on. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I I think there was, you know, when I was, uh, I remember writing a little something about uh, a homeless man got hit by a train, by the rail runner, mm, like three yeah. or four years ago. And just thinking about it, there were 90 some people in the train at the time. Yeah. And just thinking like, what, that must have been a strange afternoon for those 90 people. They were part of a murder weapon, kind of, or yeah, not, you know, not, or, you know, a hom- manslaughter weapon whatever. or something. I don't know. The accidental death. Part <laughs> of a weapon of death. Yeah. You know, like, that's weird. Right. What's that like to feel part of that? I don't yeah, know. You know? Yeah, they all sit on the train and they're yeah. like kind of annoyed that they that they're late to wherever they're yeah. going, but then they feel bad Why? when they find out that it's yeah. because the, a guy got killed. Ugh, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Things to think about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Shall well, we uh, move on? Yeah. So, what's our story about this week? Yeah. Why it's about wrestling, Mike? Wrestling, you say? Are you a fan of wrestling? Uh, not really. No. no. Uh, I mean, were yeah. you ever? You know, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, it's anytime you get spectacle, it's yeah. you know, the, you know, with heroes and villains and all heroes that stuff. And villains it's and kind of intriguing. I liked that movie from Darren Aronofsky, The Wrestler. I yeah. thought that was beautiful. No, I never saw that actually. Oh, it was great. It was really it just, and that shows you just, uh, uh, you know, the, the the humanity behind it, and, mm-hmm. and I, I appreciated that. And I love the book, The Wrestler's Cruel Study. Have you ever? No, tell that? me about it's, that. It's it's uh, it's like a this in in the world of the book this Gnostic group of mystics at the top of a skyscraper kind of secretly runs the world Mm -hmm. and they act out these ancient existential morality plays using the wrestlers and they, they, (laughs) the the results of them are prophetic and they, and they, and they, uh, they draw from that. And and the coaches are all philosophers. Like the, the main coach who's the character in the story is a Nietzschean and he's just yelling Nietzsche quotes at the (laughs) wrestlers all the time. Wonderful book. Wow. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah. You can borrow my copy. Um, 
But uh, what about during no. uh, when no. you were a kid, like in the '90s, late '80s? Yeah, that was I remember kind of the heyday of, yeah. of uh, professional wrestling with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, what so was the Rocky movie where he like box wrestles Hulk Hogan? Was that the third oh, one? Oh Lord, I can't even. It was remember. like the third. Yeah. Um, um, did he? No, he. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean T, wasn't it? Well, Hulk Hogan has like a brief thing in one. Oh, okay. Of them, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, no, it's not my world at all. But I also, you know, I mean, some people are into it. Yeah, it's so, funny because it's yeah, not my world at all yeah. either, but it's uh, it's got this aspect to it that I find endlessly intriguing mm. in that it, it it seems like a terrible idea for a sport in some mm. ways, um, mainly because it's so utterly fake. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, they, the, the wrestling world tried for a long time until probably the 80s or so to pretend that it was real. Mm. Um, but even then, it was it was pretty obvious that... Haystack Calhoun would be murdering people if he sat on their heads that way. Oh, right, right. You know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, however, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, partly in connection with the uh, with steroid use accusations mm. and um, the uh, the oversight of the professional wrestling world by various athletic, um, athletic uh, hmm. what do you call them, councils, um, state athletic councils okay. and so forth, right, right. Uh, it basically came out in a, in a public forum that it should not be considered a, a competitive sport. But it is, in fact, an entertainment, entertainment huh? venue um, hmm. that the matches are pre-scripted and so forth. And and how how can that work? You know, how can we have hmm. something that's so outlandishly fake hmm. and yet have such a strong appeal for people? Yeah. And um, in my experience, it comes down to uh, the story behind it. Oh, instead interesting. Of, well, that's fun. Instead of having the... Um, you know, it being an athletic competition right, between right. two equally matched people, it becomes instead a contest between good and evil, um, the moral and the immoral, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And um, people taking on these outlandish characters in order to show whose side they're on, whether they're a good guy or a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the 19, 1980s, 1990s, the good guys were people like Hulk Hogan, which mm. was a huge, beefy, right. all-American, you know, I am a right, real right. American was his, literally his theme song. Jeez. And the bad guys were people like um, the Iron Sheik, an mm. Iranian. Oh, wow. Who became incredibly popular uh, during the Iran hostage crisis. And then afterwards, uh, as we had all these tensions with the, the Middle Eastern world, mm-hmm. became a kind of a stand-in for whatever wow. whatever area uh, of the world that we Weird. were having trouble with at that time. Weird. Yeah. yeah. So do you think, uh, like, do, do these wrestling performances affect people's politics? Like, do they... Yeah. Do they really? I, huh. I, well, I, I, I don't know that they affect people's okay. politics, but I think that it might oftentimes be a reflection oh, of... Of the people who are attending. Interesting. You know. Well, um, why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a number of uh, number of regional um, independent wrestling oh, groups okay. throughout right. the country, as there have been for about a century now. All right. Okay. Uh, and there's one here in Albuquerque. Ah, so, yes. They're called the right. Destiny Wrestling Organization. Yeah. And they're basically, they do all that stuff, but on a smaller Crazy. scale. I just want to say my ignorance about all this is as fake as wrestling. <laughs> Ty and I talked about this before. Um, no, I'm really, I'm really excited to uh, hear this this piece, man. Like, so where did, where was this published? Uh, this was published on Narratively, okay, which is a site based out of New York. That um, let me see, their website is literally narrative.ly. All right, clever. Uh, so go check that out, and you can read the story and see some awesome photos of these wrestlers. 
by um, photographer Eric Williams. Nice, nice. Uh, so let's go ahead yeah. and we'll go on into it, I guess. All right, here we go. It's Saturday night in Albuquerque, and Hobo Hank is winning. His opponent, Ozzy Gallegos, a flannel-wearing, long-haired grunge type from Seattle, can't seem to get the upper hand. The crowd, riled up by Gallegos' earlier proclamation that I'm the guy who's going to beat your hero, is loving it. Hobo Hank, you see, is Albuquerque's favorite babyface, a wrestling term for good guy. He's a perpetually down-on-his-luck everyman who doesn't always fight clean, but always fights for what's right. He's a man who will do what it takes to get ahead, but somehow never quite can. Gallegos, on the other hand, is a heel, mainly by virtue of his coming from out of state. Right now, the hobo's luck seems to have changed. Gallegos has slipped out of the ring to dodge Hank's barrage of blows, but Hank is right behind him, sweaty, grunting, and unstoppable. Gallegos comes up against the metal barrier separating the ring area from the seats, and Hank is on him, grabbing his head and forcing his face into his greasy hobo armpit. Gallegos struggles for a moment, then goes limp while the crowd roars and chants, Hobo Hank! Hobo Hank! Hobo Hank fights for the Destiny Wrestling Organization, an independent professional wrestling league based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. The DWO is one of dozens of indie leagues across the United States, and one of hundreds that have risen and mostly fallen over the last century. The matches take place in the gymnasium of the Westside Community Center in Albuquerque's semi-rural South Valley, and typically attract one to two hundred spectators. They take up their seats and folding chairs surrounding the ring or in the bleachers against the wall. Let's be clear, DWO is a far cry from WWE, or WWF for us old-timers. When it began in the early 2000s, Destiny Wrestling was little more than an excuse for four high school friends to screw around in their backyards and mimic the moves they'd seen on television. Adam Merrick, the 31-year-old commissioner of DWO and one of this original cadre, remembers, we just did it for fun, we didn't take it seriously at all. But after a few years of this casual approach, their passion for wrestling only grew, and they began to put on their first shows, Amateur affairs at the National Guard Armory, or a gym at one of the local Native American reservations. Slowly, they adopted a more professional approach to training and were able to consistently present believable performances in the ring. Merrick, whose slight frame precluded success in a physical arena, became the commissioner and worked to develop the backstories of the characters. Of course, in boxing, it's just these two guys fighting. MMA, just two guys fighting. There's not so much setup, Merrick says. With wrestling, there's a backstory to it. There's a reason these two guys are fighting. Merrick and members of DWO used YouTube as a platform to develop these storylines. In a long series of videos, DWO wrestlers grimace and flex their muscles, growling insults to each other and referencing betrayals, victories, and defeats going back nearly a decade. For a small outfit based out of a small city, there is a significant dichotomy between the larger-than-life personas that the wrestlers project in the ring and the fact that, well, they're nowhere near close to being on a Hulk Hogan level. This dichotomy gives the typical DWO show a surreal quality. Almost all of these guys have day jobs, and none of them are famous outside the circuit of independent leagues. But an event attendee would never guess that by the way the wrestlers carry themselves in the ring. 
For the 10 minutes or so that they will wrestle in the West Side Community Center, they are heroes and villains of mythical proportions. Hobo Hank exemplifies this duality in a peculiar way. Unlike many of the babyface wrestlers, he is no oiled-up Goliath in a flashy costume. Instead, he's a bit dumpy, a scrabble-hardened face and a dirty orange jacket and torn-up jeans. He enters the arena to the tune of the nitty-gritty dirt band's Mr. Bojangles, carrying an over-the-shoulder backpack and a sign that reads, Will Rassel for Food, God Bless. Despite, or perhaps because of, his unassuming character, the crowd loves him. The Walter Mitty and me wanted to know more about the world of local wrestling, so I arranged to meet Hobo Hank at Buffalo Wild Wings in Los Lunas, New Mexico, the bedroom community 40 miles south of Albuquerque that he calls home. He arrived in a weather-beaten SUV and brought his family with him, wife Lisa and 10-year-old daughter Chelsea. Each was polite and soft-spoken as they shook my hand and introduced themselves. Inside, we grabbed a table and ordered a round of drinks. First things first, I asked, what is your real name, and what do you do when you're not in the ring? My name is Joe Singer. What, what is it that you do as Joe Singer? What's, what's your life like as Joe Singer? Uh, well, uh, I've been married for 20 years. 20 years? My wife, okay. Lisa. Uh, my daughter, Chelsea, she's 10 years old. Uh-huh. Um, daily life, I'm a, I'm a general manager for Chile. How old are you? I'm 35. 35. And how long have you been wrestling? Uh, this, this year is 20 years. Seriously? Yeah. You've been wrestling since you were 15? Yep, I was 15. The, I just... It was a couple weeks before my 16th birthday, I think, is when I started wrestling. Okay, so what was that like? How, how did you get involved in wrestling at that age? Uh, after she and I started dating, uh, I mentioned it to her mom. Her, you know, typical mother-in-law early conversations. What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to be when you grow up? Kind of uh-huh. And uh, I told her I, I always wanted to be a professional wrestler. That's since I was eight. That's what I wanted to do. Really? Absolutely. I idolized it. Yeah. And, uh, so when I when I told her that, she said that she actually knew a couple that were from down in this area. Um, a guy by the name of Leo Luna. He traveled back in the day. He did a lot of the uh, a lot of the independent circuits, same as I do now. But okay. he also worked with some of the house shows for WWF. And oh, really? Okay. Some of those guys. And so she put me in contact with him, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was a little different back then. We, you know, nowadays when you want to learn how to wrestle, it's it's kind of a school atmosphere. You almost you go to a training facility that does that, and you okay. sign up for classes and you pay money and and. Uh, you know, anybody that's got the check that clears, they'll they'll teach you what, what right. they want to teach you. It didn't work like that back then. It's, it was it was still you know the internet hadn't really caught on uh-huh, to the sure. degree it has at this point now. Um, and so the knowledge about what the wrestling business was in '94 '95 uh, a little different. So yeah, it was more of a mob mentality, and they wouldn't they wouldn't just teach everybody the business. Okay. So you kind of had to prove yourself that you were worthy. You really wanted to do it. And you yeah. really wanted to be part of it. Um, so back then they would uh, they just beat on you. You'd go three or four nights in a row, and these guys would just 
flinging around. They wouldn't teach you anything. They would just <laughs> work you over. So it's like to see if you can take it kind of thing? Exactly. Like, and you keep coming back? Yep. And was it, like, actually, like, painful? I mean... It was, it was super painful. It was yeah. super painful. Absolutely, yeah. That night, after his first session... As he lay in bed, muscles screaming in agony, he seriously considered not going back. But the next day he did. Luda and Baca once again did their best to push him past his limits. After four nights in a row, it was clear Singer would come back again and again. So they slowly started to teach him the real secrets of wrestling. The tricks behind how to take a fall, how to sell a chokehold, and how to work the crowd by winning them over or enraging them against you. After one more crushing throw from the ropes, Gallegos, landing in a collapsed pile on the ground, submits to Hobo Hank. The referee holds up Hank's hand and the crowd cheers. Hank, always stoic, catches his breath and takes a moment to bask in his victory. But then, a dark, suited figure appears on the edge of the stage, microphone in hand, eyes hidden behind wraparound sunglasses. No, 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 he shouts. You saw it. I saw it. We all saw it. But it's not at all clear what he's talking about. However, the audience is suddenly quiet, aghast. They're listening to Matthew Robles, 46, a sleazy attorney and talent manager and DWO's director of competition. He is also Hobo Hank's nemesis. Robles slithers into the ring and hisses into his mic, Hobo Hank is automatically disqualified. This match goes to Ozzy Gallegos. The crowd erupts into booing. Hank's stoic facade is cracked as he shouts into Robles' face. This isn't the first time a win has been stolen from Hank by the slimy Robles. Six months ago, Robles surreptitiously sabotaged Hank's match against the almighty Sheik, and then had another villain hold him down while the Sheik attempted to blind Hank with an honest-to-God fireball, or at least a bit of flash paper ignited via sleight of hand. The blood is bad between these two archetypes, the duplicitous lawyer and the perpetually down-on-his-luck hobo. Despite the boos, the ref gives in to Robles' cajoling and lifts the right hand of the still-prone Gallegos. Hank grimaces, shakes his head, and goes backstage. Screwed over once again. The most important concept in professional wrestling is the one that separates it from competitive sports. Kayfabe. A word that is both hard to define and of uncertain origin, though many believe it comes from carnival slang. The fact that pro wrestling matches are scripted is well known, yet fans continue to tune in and show up. This is the nature of kayfabe. It is a shared illusion, a fantasy that performer and audience member agree to participate in. Joe Singer alludes to kayfabe when he talks about what drew him to wrestling in the first place. So what was it about wrestling that appealed to you as a, as a kid? I mean, you say you bled wrestling. Like, what, what was it that was, you know, sticking its hooks into you? Um, you know, it, it's hard to say. I, I think the biggest thing for me was... Um, Again, when I was a kid, I was younger than her, probably eight years old, and I was t- my grandma was in a wheelchair, my great-grandma was in a wheelchair, my grandfather had Alzheimer's, um, so it was 
I mean, my day was like wake up at five. I would change my grandfather's diapers, yeah. bathe him, feed him, clean right. the house um, before I would go to school, third grade, you know, second, wow. third grade. Yeah. Come home and uh, clean house, and cook, and I mean, the yeah. whole time. So to me, wrestling was, that was my escape. That was, yeah. that was the thing that uh, at that moment I could be a, a kid and yeah. I, I could just tune yeah. in and watch it. Um, so I used to tape all the shows. I'd have the VCR set to tape every single wrestling show, and um, and I'd go rent pay-per-views from the uh, poster video. And I, I, I studied it. I never really just watched it as a casual fan. I always, it was always to me about what were they doing, how were they doing it, why why was I so engaged with the, the performers that I was watching. Um, I knew it wasn't real, although you know there's moments that you suspend your disbelief right. sure. because you know it's just hard to it's hard to imagine how people could do some of the things that they did yeah um, and there was never a doubt to me that I would do it now, never right. ever never um, I never knew yeah I, mean, I, I couldn't wait to see behind the curtain and see how they were pulling some of these things off and uh, to my surprise some there was less trickery to some of it than I thought. Uh, okay. Um, some of it gets a lot more real than you might think. So. Okay. So what what would be an example of something that's? Uh, you know, when you see somebody get hit in the head with a chair, you, you think there's it's, it's got to be a fake chair. It has to be. Yeah. Uh, it has to be a prop. You know, they're they're real chairs. The tables are real. Uh, barbed wire. That's all real. Yeah. It's real right. stuff. The and, blood is real. It's blood and a lot real. of that stuff. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So. Um, there's uh, there's techniques to minimize the damage sure. to most of it, but a lot of what you see is what you get. So these days, wrestlers still perform the same magic tricks they have for a century, but they are less likely to pretend that they are actually magic. Adam Merrick, for instance, speaks openly of meetings where storylines are planned out, and the training is no longer a process of hazing before parting the curtains for a worthy few but rather it resembles a training regimen for almost any other sport or performance. In Albuquerque, training duties now fall to Adam Montoya, a.k.a. Mosh Pit Mike. In a ring in his backyard, though he is quick to point out it's not backyard wrestling, Montoya now runs recruits through a string of cardio drills, jogging in place, throwing themselves to the ground, and then leaping back onto their feet. Only after exercising will he initiate mock matches between neophytes. The battles are brief, an intro of circling in the ring, then bursts of holds and throws in which the emphasis is on selling, the act of displaying pain and passion for the audience. After each practice match, Montoya offers tips to the new guys. It was great, he says to Eric Martinez, a short, nimble high school senior who is particularly promising. Next time, though, don't dodge the clothesline way out there. It makes you look weak. So focus more on getting in close and looking strong. Eric nods. After stripping Hobo Hank of a victory earlier in the evening, Matthew Robles' machinations continue to shift the balance toward his favorite heels. In a match between the meaty Texan heel Chad Thomas and a wild-haired trickster named Mikey McFinnigan, Robles holds the irascible McFinnigan against the ropes while Thomas beats him senseless. But then, as Thomas is being declared the winner by the hapless referee, something unexpected happens. 
Hobo Hank appears, stalking to the squared circle with purpose. Thomas moves to block him from entering the ring, but Hank grabs a chair on the way and swings it into the Texan's face, knocking the giant to the ground. The crowd responds with confusion. And then, Adam Merrick, the commissioner himself, wearing blue jeans, a dress shirt, tie, and vest, takes to the ring and grabs the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, Merrick begins, it's come to my attention that Matthew Robles, he pauses for a chorus of boos, may not be an impartial director of competition. He goes silent again for a beat, absorbing the crowd's response. And I've realized that I need to do something to regain my power from Matthew Robles. So I went out and got myself a new advisor. Ladies and gentlemen, the new advisor of Destiny Wrestling. None other than Eric Bischoff, one-time president of WCW, a rival league of WWF that enjoyed a pay-per-view heyday in the mid-1990s, steps out from behind the curtain. Bischoff stands tall in the ring. The crowd's chant of holy shit, rhythmic and overwhelming, drowning out his words. In his glory days, Bischoff headed the second largest wrestling outfit in the world, and now here he is in Albuquerque at the Westside Community Center. Finally, the chant settles down and Bischoff's words can be heard. I've been having several long conversations with my new best friend here, Hobo Hank, Bischoff says as he puts his arm around Hank. Robles' jaw hangs open. And you know, I freaking hate lawyers, so here's what I'm going to do. Bischoff then lays out his plan to return to the next DW event and preside over a match between Robles' favorite henchman, Chad Thomas, and Hank. And it gets sweeter, Bischoff continues. Chairs will be legal. And not only that, Bischoff jabs his godlike finger towards Robles, who is cowering below him outside the ring. But I'm going to take a piece of your skinny ass. Robles appears terrified at this threat of violence. The crowd cheers again. It is deafening. Um, I applied. I applied to WCW. Okay. Which ironically, that's he, Eric Bischoff was the president. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I sent videotapes to, to WCW, WWF, and uh, ECW, uh, Extreme Championship Wrestling, and I never heard back. From, I wasn't hearing back from anybody. Right. Any of them, right? So I called ECW, and they told me they weren't taking on new talent. So I called WCW, and they said that they were in a hiring freeze. And this is right. early 2000, 2000, 2001, I think. About three weeks later, WWF called me. Uh, Kevin Kelly called me. Okay. He was the recruiter for talent at that time, and he said. Um, I got your video. I like, I like what I saw. I like the character. Uh, was this the Hobo Hank character? Actually, no. This was my my first character. Was the fireman. I used to wear a mask with flames on my face. I had pants with flames on the side, uh, and I was a bad guy. I was okay. Super arrogant. Uh, I do like I I do push-ups in the ring, and okay. I'd like swivel my hips at girls and like oh, sweat at the boyfriends and you know, stuff like that. Um, run my mouth. I like the expression on your face right there. Yeah, right she's, there. <laughs> she's never seen that live, so. Uh, um, but at some point I became Hobo Hank back when I was a global championship wrestling in El Paso. Okay. They, they asked me to become that character. Um, but anyway, they, uh, 
yeah, Kevin uh, from WWE, he was he was into it. And he he said, I, I'd like you to get bigger. I was about 220 at that point. Okay. I'm about six foot tall. Mm-hmm. He said I needed to be about 240 and okay. 6% body fat. So I had a way to go on the physique. Right. Um, but he put me on a list. He said, I want to call you back in about six months. If you can get to that point, get your body where we want it, um, you know, we'll bring you up and, and do some stuff with you. So that was a pretty big day at yeah. our house. I was excited to talk to the right. guy. And, um, so right away, you know, I started, back then I was hanging out with Thunder a lot. Like that? Uh, oh, okay. I him, uh, a lot of those guys back, back then. So Thunder and I were running around together doing a lot of the traveling and wrestling. And, uh, so he and I started hitting the gym five days, six days a week, just trying to get to that point. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, WCW closed. Yeah. Four months into my six-month phone call. Right. Oh, man. Um, and when that happened, every wrestler that was in contract from WCW was now up yeah. for grabs. Right, right. There right. was just no way. I mean, these guys yeah. were merchandise. They had established already. characters and, yeah, people. Yeah. There was just no chance for anybody like me to get a, right. a shot. You know, I just wasn't that, I wasn't big enough to, um, you know, pass anybody up. So, sure. Um, so, I mean, I guess I probably held on to the dream in the back of my mind for sure. a little while, but, yeah. you know, at some point he's got to be realistic. So when I started, I, I worked for Ernest Baca, and his his little organization was called the ICPW, and it stood for Independent Card Professional Wrestling. Okay. So he'd run shows all over New Mexico, and I think we did a couple in Arizona, maybe back then. Um, and then, uh, again, it was different because... You know, now wrestlers get booked primarily through Facebook, through Twitter, and you know, right. back then it didn't work like that. It was all word of mouth. So yeah. you had to have somebody that would vouch for you and say this guy could work. He could wrestle. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to be somebody that had worked for somebody before that they trusted. Right. So Ernest was that guy for me. He had worked all over the Southwest, and um, so he would take me to the shows that he was getting booked at. Mm-hmm. Bring me in and say, you know, this this kid's good. Put him on a card. And you're like 19 at this point. Right? Uh, really, I was yeah. like 16. At this 16. Point. Okay. Yeah, I used to. I they actually put me in a mask because it was illegal for me to wrestle. Oh. In Texas, you had to be 18 to wrestle. So I, right. I wore a mask and uh, ducked the, the. They they didn't have a commission over there, so okay. it was pretty easy to get away with it. But um, it was hard to get established here though because we never nobody ran in Albuquerque it was the yeah. commission was here and the it costs so much money to run a show because you have right. to do you have to do it by the book yeah. whereas in places like Texas you just I mean anybody with the a ring oh really kind of throw stuff up and just set it up whatever. and go yeah um, is that just Albuquerque specifically that that, that was difficult or uh, New Mexico as a whole anywhere okay. in the state that's not a um, Indian Reservation. Oh. So a lot of my early shows were on Indian Reservations. Okay. Um, we'd travel out, you know, drive three or four hours. Yeah. And believe it or not, you know, some of those places, you you uh, set up an event, put some flyers up, and there'll be three or four hundred people will show up because there's nothing to do. Right. So sure. people that have never seen wrestling even on television show up to those things, and um, it's a little different. You have to kind of tell the story differently yeah. that night. But, right, right. Uh, it's cool. Some of them... You know, some of the most fun I've ever had in the nice. business has been in a place like that. So, okay, let's let's go back to the um, the Hobo Hag character. You see, that was 
conceived in El Paso. It was. As a, like, you had this fireman character, and they needed somebody to take on Hobo Hank specifically. Is that Pretty much. Right? So how did that work? What's... Yeah, I was working as a fireman down there, and um, again, I was a heel. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty popular as a heel. I got all, I mean, the word is heat. I don't know if you've seen that term as you're doing your... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So getting heat, because that's a thing. Whether it's good or bad, as a matter of the crowd reacts, that's right. what you want. Right, So I, I got a lot of heat. But yeah, the, the promoter, uh, just one night, I, I finished my match, and he pulled me aside, and he said, I got, I got an idea, and I, I was wondering if you'd want to try it. I said, Yes. What, what is it? Um, he said, I, we've been talking and we'd like to get some kind of a, a homeless character, like a hobo, up and running. We think it'd be really cool to get a hobo that, you know, to come out and, um, you know, just, just look the part, like look homeless and, and look the whole deal. But, could, like, all of a sudden it could wrestle. It could really, you know, yeah. do the moves and do the deed. Um, and back then I had really long hair. It was like halfway down my oh, back. Oh, okay. So I think that's why they thought of me right off the bat. <laughs> um, plus they knew if I took off my mask and I had a different character that I could then wear, I could work three or four times a night. Oh, yeah. You know, I could take off my mask. I could do two in the mask, two without. And that sounds hard on you, though. It would be. Back then I probably could have pulled it off. No, I'm, there's no yeah. way. Man. No way. I'm lucky I could do it once a month now. Um, so they convinced me uh, to give it a shot, and, and the, the thing was that they told me that they wanted to put the championship belt, the heavyweight belt on me, uh-huh. as Hobo Hank. Well, to be honest, we didn't even know the name at that night. That night, okay, we were just, just kind of spitballing ideas. One of a homeless guy. Hobo Joe, Hobo Hank, yeah, yeah, yeah. something. So I told Matt was a promoter, I said, yeah, I'll do it. Because, uh, yeah, I want, I'd, like, I'd like a championship belt. This is on television, I think it'd be cool. Sure, yeah. So... Uh, I went home and didn't think much of it until the following week and all of a sudden my mind started kind of racing and I was thinking uh, these guys wanted me to pretend to be drunk oh yeah okay like stumbling around and um, just talking kind of stu- stupid on the mic and some of the more negative like stereotypes exactly yeah. just be okay. you know and there was a lot of kids in that audience and and it's going to be on television right Plus, this is the first time I've ever worked in my career with no mask on. Like, this is going to be my face yeah, sure. uh, attached to whatever this character is. So I, I got cold feet. And the morning of the show, like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, it was early, I remember, I called uh, the booker. His name was Hector, uh, Hurricane Hector. I called him up. Poor guy. I probably got him out of bed. And I said, man, I, I can't do this. I, I don't feel good about this. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know. We're gonna have to try something else. And uh, Hector was a real—he's a really super nice guy. And he said, "You know, I—I I understand where you're coming from. I respect that you don't want to do that, but we've already got your name on the poster." Right. And you know, in wrestling, you, you just don't—you don't change. You don't want to back out. Yeah. Because you know, people, you know, that trust is very important to have with the fans. You, you sure. advertise that somebody's gonna be there. You know, if we tell you Eric Bischoff's going to be a DWO, yeah. Eric Bischoff's going to be a DWO. Right, right. So, uh, you know, I understood where he was coming from too. And so reluctantly I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it just tonight, just to fulfill the obligation. But that's it. We're, you know, we're going to squash it. He was fine with that. So I had to work that day. Uh, I used to work at Pizza Hut. I was a manager at Pizza Hut in Sapporo, which is about an hour south. 
So what we would do is I would work the morning shift, and then Thunder and Mosh Pit Mike would pick me up from Pizza Hut. We would drive to El Paso and then wrestle that night. Wow. <laughs> and then go drink all night, you know, and then come home the next day. So I had like five or ten minutes to get ready for work, and uh, I hadn't put any thought into this character because I had no intention of doing it. Right. So I'm like, God damn it, what am I going to do? i got to put something together. So I, I ran to a couple of closets in my house, and I just started digging through all the clothes and mm-hmm. stuff in there. And I pulled out pretty much my outfit that you see today in the orange jacket, the yeah. shirt, the jeans, the whole night. I just, it was just random stuff I was grabbing. And then we spent the next, you know, the drive after I worked that day, the guys picked me up. I told them what had happened. We spent the rest of that drive trying to figure out how to make that as stupid as I possibly could. Okay. Uh, because we didn't, I, I told them, I said, I, I just want to get this over with put this to bed nobody will ever see it or, or want this done again uh, so let me do a bad job of the character and then I can go back to being the fireman yeah, the crowd loved they were just eat every bit of it up it clicked huh? I mean, the first night there was like a standing ovation right, right. chanting the, you know I mean you heard the other night so same kind of stuff but the very first night they ever saw it and were you doing the stuff where he was drunk and kind of I wasn't talking I not, crazy into the microphone no, no? I left all that out so it was pretty much what you still see to this day for the most part. Yeah, like he seems... I think it's interesting because I, I you know, when you hear the name Hobo Hank is going gonna, is gonna to wrestle, you picture something more like that first idea, a much more kind of negative stereotype, and yet I feel like the character that you have now is this... Like you kind of feel like Hobo Hank is just a guy who needs a chance, you know? Like, he, he right. is the guy standing there by the side of the road with the sign, like literally the sign, mm-hmm. and he's just having a hard time right now, he can't catch a break, he needs to catch a break. And yeah, he might be willing to do some kind of off-color stuff, like some, uh, maybe not play everything exactly by the rules, but it's just because he, you know, he's doing it for a good reason, is kind of how I feel. So, I mean, is that, like, do you feel like that's an accurate assessment of... That the Hobo is, Hank is? That is. You know, in my mind, um, in my mind, Hobo Hank is a hobo by choice. Okay. Um, you know, I don't, and I think you nailed it. You know, if, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think he's just comfortable with who he is. He doesn't really care that right. he's not worried about the money. He's not there for the money. He's just there to uh, do what he does, and this is what he does. Right. Um, I like, uh, I, I do try, you know, initially, uh, Hobo Hank's there to wrestle. Yeah. Uh, he'll wrestle right. you. Um, and as soon as you start to push the envelope, he's going to push it back, but worse. Yeah, yeah. So uh, once the rules have been broken, he's not, he'll, he'll do it. He'll go toe-to-toe with yeah. you. Yeah. He's not going to be the instigator, in other words. He's going to no. give it back as good as he gets. Absolutely. Kind of what do you think it is about Hobo Hank that, that's so... Engaging for people. I don't. You know, we actually were having a conversation Saturday night about it, and uh, uh, the guys were kind enough to say it's my charisma. I don't know. Maybe it has. I guess it has something to do with it. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think uh, I think being an underdog is a huge part of it. Yeah. People like that. I think they like the unexpected nature mm-hmm. of it because. Hobo Hank will do some things that you're just not quite you don't you just don't know what he's gonna do. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
I, I've pretty much run the gamut too. I've done a lot of very technical wrestling matches. You know, I don't go toe to toe in a technical sense, but I've done a lot of extreme matches, a lot of bloody, you know, very hardcore type things, and um, so I've kind of appealed to to the masses in that regard. Um, you know, I try to be super personable because I I remember as a kid being you know sitting like third or fourth row at the WWF events and just getting a touch of wrestler's hand that was yeah, like the biggest right. coolest thing in the world to me sure so I, I do make sure um, anytime as long as I'm not hurt I'm always out there for intermission I'm always out there after the matches I'll stay for an hour two hours and sign autographs take pictures whatever it is because um, I think that's important so I guess that probably has stuff to do with it Something about approachable, being approachable. I think so, and you know, like when little kids come up, I, I always kneel down, and talk to them, and meet. The, I'll ask them their name, things like that. So, sure. Um, just being a just being a human being, I think they. I think a big part of it too, getting back to like the Jake the Snake type psychology is when you're when you're trying to work a crowd, no matter if it's yeah. ten people or a thousand or whatever it is, the trick is to work one at a time. Okay. And when, you, when, when you're in the ring, if you can look at somebody and engage their eyes yeah. and let them, just for a moment, feel what you feel, it ripples. So you feel it and, and you react to it. And right. the people that are next to you and behind you, they react to it and it just starts to... And that's a lot. Like when I go out, you'll notice every single night I come out, I go through the crowd. I always right. walk through the crowd, right? Um, a big part of that... The reason to me is, of course, again, because I think people just appreciate getting to shake the hand. Yeah. But psychologically, what I'm trying to do there is the more people that touch me and get up close to me, they re- they identify you as a human. Yeah, okay. Because they, they realize that this is a flesh and blood person. He's not That's seven feet tall. He's six right. feet tall. I weigh 200 pounds. Or 230 is what I get booked at or whatever. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not Superman. I'm a... I am, uh, I'm you, you know, I'm everybody. It's almost like watching yourself doing the thing. You know, a lot of those guys that are in the crowd, they dreamt of doing it too. Sure. You know, and yeah. a lot of them swore when they were young that that's what they were going to be when they grew up. They just, for whatever reason, they didn't. You know, maybe there's some life gets in the way or they just changed their mind or whatever. Um, but the little boy inside still says, man, I, I wish I could or I really right. wanted to. And I think they, they see little of themselves in, in me and at least uh, you know at least in the more uh, basic matches oh, I, I could do I could do some of that I, I, you know, he doesn't have a great body he doesn't have a and that's been a big part of, you know Thank you. Oh. I'm not gonna lie that character was perfect because uh, hell I didn't have to go to the gym I didn't have to go to the tanning booth I didn't have to do any <laughs> of that stuff man. Yeah, yeah. where everybody else was back there oiling up and getting tattoos and all I, I just have to mess up my hair throw on my clothes and yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. ready to Go wrestle in two or three minutes so. um, I don't know all I can say is I you know I, I, I do put a lot of thought into the psychology piece of it um, you know next time you're watching uh, you'll see, you know look like when I'm laying on, on my back uh, and I'm hurt uh, look, look at where my eyes are I'm always looking at somebody. When I raise my hand up, yeah. uh, like I'm, like I'm struggling, look at how it's being done. So it's this personal connection feels like very key to your 
success of this. It, it is. It is. And, and so I don't I don't train a lot of wrestlers anymore. I did uh, back in the day. I probably trained 60 or 70 wrestlers over the course of the years. Wow. Uh, you know, now, again, I'm just I'm so busy, it's, it's hard to find time to do that stuff. But anytime I have any time to train those guys, I do very little actual wrestling in the ring with them. It's, it's this. I'm trying to teach them. It's ninety percent mental. It's ten percent physical. Uh, and if I can, if I can help them to understand how to get their character across like that, it, it, it does wonders. It's a, it's a whole different business. And for you, Lisa, you've been involved in this the whole time. It sounds like. What are your impressions of the evolution of uh, of Joe's career and Hobo Hank's kind of rise? I think it's crazy that they mention his name at the matches and people go crazy. Yeah. Because I, I know him. Right. Every and, day. Uh, yeah, every day. He gets recognized and he'll tell me, I got recognized today. And I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> he didn't get recognized. So I did, I did. And it's true, we'll go somewhere. And people are like, oh, you're, you're a wrestler, you're a wrestler. I don't know, he was, when he was younger, he was crazy, crazy about it, he would do every, anything, travel anywhere, you know, I used to go, like, almost every match, even out of town, before sure. he was born, yeah. and now, now it's not, it's not the same, he still loves it, but I don't think he's as crazy about it like he used to be. Maybe yeah. because he was thinking of getting into the into the into WWE at that right, time. Right, right. So he was so focused on it. So now I think he just enjoys the work. He's not actually working towards something. As the evening in Albuquerque winds down, a snaking crowd of spectators forms, mostly to pose for photos with Eric Bischoff and Hobo Hank. Tomorrow morning, the Westside Community Center's gym will be used for pickup basketball games rather than epic struggles between good and evil. On Monday, Matthew Robles will begin another day, not as the director of competition he uses men as pawns and will do anything to get ahead, nor even as an attorney, but as a structural engineer at McNeil Engineering. Commissioner Adam Merrick, ringmaster of this muscle-bound circus of baby faces and heels, will report to his job as a tech agent for Citibank, and Hobo Hank will again become Joe Singer, general manager at Chili's father and husband. I knew a man Bojangles and he danced for you in worn out shoes silver hair and ragged shirt and baggy pants Peace. Ty, that's awesome man. That's really like I feel like I had no idea of this aspect of Albuquerque. There's people meeting in rec centers and freaking out over local wrestlers and stuff. Big crowds. Big so crowds. weird. I took Courtney to the last match, the um, the one where Eric Bischoff yeah. presided over the uh, the actual yeah. contest between Hobo Hank mm-hmm. and uh, the Texan Chad Thomas, and um, <laughs> it was packed. It was totally oh, wow. packed, and it was it was a good time. Strange. And even and Courtney even liked it. You had fun, Courtney. Yeah. Okay. She's in the other room. Uh, <laughs> that's cool. Um, um, and wow. I, I think what surprised me about huh. it because I. I had kind of looked it up on a whim. Okay. I had heard the album Beat the Champ by the Mountain Goats, which is uh, about oh. the old territorial days of wrestling. Oh, nice. I was like, I wonder if there's still any um, any local wrestlers around. Yeah. And uh, that's when I found DWO. Yeah. 
And um, I wasn't I wasn't at all sure what to expect, but they take it very seriously. And Interesting. I was, I was uh, surprised and pleased by how much they kind of honor the tradition. Cool. Man, how interesting. You know, I listening to this and hearing Hobo Hank's personal story, I mean, this is really like this is a a symbolic story. Totally. This is this is something that is out there for people to identify with. It's an avatar yeah. for people's daily struggles. <laughs> I mean, that's the reason that we led into this from our previous episode. Right. It's like this is about just being and existing. I mean, people really are having a struggle. This guy's a manager at Chili's. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, and, and how you can kind of, you know, you don't have to give up your dreams exactly just because they don't play out yeah. in exactly the way you see them when you're, sure, when you're yeah. younger. Yeah. Like this guy was hoping to be a part of WWF and, mm-hmm. and all that. And it didn't exactly pan out. And yet he's got this really kind of fulfilling, um, uh, manifestation of, of it, yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. it's on a it's on a kind of smaller community level. Craziness, and see, as an artist, as yeah. a writer, I, yeah. I kind of feel a lot of kinship with mm, that. Yeah. Somebody, you know, there's yeah every chance that that I'm not going to be. Um, Ty, don't say that, man. That's horrible. No, we're going to be really famous. We're, we're, but I'm not going to be. Uh, like, I would. I would settle for Eddie Dillard. I'm not going to be the next Eddie Dillard. You know. Well, um, man, that'd be but, amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, there's. You know. I think you're happen- going to be the next Hampton Sides. That's, that's what I think. <laughs> I think. I mean, no, seriously, because you write really compellingly about regional yeah. topics and stuff, and make them make them relevant. That guy had a well, huge hit out of a book about uh, who's the guy that did the genocide. Um, uh, Kit Carson. Oh, okay. Kit Carson. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a very regional topic, and he made that he made that hugely successful. Right. It's like you know? just because the the things that you're trying to do with your life aren't necessarily going in the uh, yeah in the direction that you might have hoped for or visualized at some point. That's not a reason to give up. You know? No, no, yeah. Um, well, you know, as writers, though, we have more options than just one wrestling league. Yeah, it's, no, <laughs> you know, it's, it's true. We, we're it's a true. little we're lucky in that way. You know, there's multiple publishers, and in fact. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. But yeah. I mean, as, in we terms of like past. making the big time or something, I yeah. think it's kind of a relevant idea as far as like, yeah. are we ever going to be millionaires selling millions of copies of our books? You know, like freaking Stephen King oh. or something like that, you know? And, I'm eh. not giving up yet. I'm, I'm hanging on. <laughs> no, well, you shouldn't. That's the <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah. You know, it's like you just don't know where things are going. Right. And who knows where Hobo Hank will go? I mean, he, yeah. his story could have some serious twists and turns in it still. And, and it's worthwhile as yeah. it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. These two hundred people show up every uh, every month at the West Side Community Center. Yeah, Eric Bischoff came down and put his arm around the guy and Crazy. said, "You know, it's like that is a that wow. is a meaningful, um, Pe- meaningful way, yeah. uh, meaningful success." I'd say people are really into it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I've been teaching uh, literature and writing lately, and some of my a couple of my lit students are really into wrestling, but I don't think they know about the local scene here. I want to tell you them about tell it. Them. Get them out there. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is yeah. so fun. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. enjoyable. I think even if um even if you've never particularly cared about following wrestling, mm-hmm. I still think it's worth going and watching yeah. these guys yeah. at least once. The spectacle of it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, David and Eric, you gotta go. I'm gonna give them a little <laughs> shout out and then I'm gonna tell them to listen to this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's not it's so like how do people find out about this stuff? Like, what would they follow um, on Facebook? Go or look to up the uh, Destiny Wrestling Organization's Destiny Facebook Wrestling page. Organization. Yeah, also okay. Hobo Hank has a Facebook page. Oh, okay. They're also all over Twitter. Interesting. Just keep your eyes open. Crazy. You they know, it's do this about once a month. That's great. 
You know, I love my favorite part of this whole article is a phrase you wrote, greasy hobo armpit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's kind of his secret power move. He did that at the last one, too, where he shoves the guy's face in his armpit. And the guy is just so overpowered by the smell, apparently, that he, uh, he goes limp. That is so funny. And I also love that you met at a Buffalo Wild Wings in Las Lunas. That is I like, know. ain't that America? Man, ain't that America? Yeah. Um, and uh, I love that there was like this FM Drek just playing in the background the whole time. Right, right. Santana featuring <laughs> Michelle Branch. We don't have to pay uh, for that. It was just on while we were no. having to record the interview, right? God, why do places feel like they have to have noise on all the time? Just music constantly. Yeah. It's like, what's wrong with conversation and just the sound of life? I like everywhere right. I go. There's like some radio station cranking. I just like crave silence and peace all the time. Anyway, <laughs> um, but so I made a, a few notes listening to that. I love, uh, I just, I don't know, I love this, that, like, whoever we are, we need, like, symbols of our own struggles, you know? I feel like, you know, as as writers, we probably look to writers a lot, I think, for that, you know? But, I mean, it makes sense that, like, as we're, you know, the working class and and regular people would, like, would look elsewhere, would look, would look to, you know, wrestlers, to whoever, you know? Like, they're they're acting out these, like, symbolic... They're more you know, equations players. in a way, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely like a, a sort of code of honor yeah. implicit in these these matches. Yeah, you know? and it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with whether somebody's willing to bend the rules. It's how they bend the rules right. that that counts. And there's know? justice and injustice. It's like oh, yeah. Ecclesiastes or something like. <laughs> sometimes the villains win. You know, sometimes the good guys the pull ahead. Win a lot. Yeah. <laughs> But it just makes it when the good guys win yeah. the one time and they yeah. win like legitimately yeah. that much better. Some of the details that really stood out on this list, and I'd read your article before, but, mm-hmm. but hearing it made, it made it fresh in my mind. Um, I love the thought of driving to the reservation towns yeah, to have this. Right. I mean, that's just like, wow, I want to see that, that documentary. <laughs> I want to see that movie. And I love the idea of like being trained by someone locally that had been trained before. Like yeah. that this has been going on for it decades. Goes on. It's uh, yeah, Hobo yeah. Hank was yeah. tra- trained by Ernest the Animal Baca, who was trained by Leo the Savage Luna, okay. who was trained by Navajo Joe. No, Navajo Frank. Sorry, okay. Navajo Frank. So this is already back in the sixties. Wow, wow. At this point, and presumably Navajo Frank was trained by somebody else. You know, it just goes on Crazy. and on. And it's. Um, it's something that I would love to learn more yeah. about. It's it's kind of hard to find the sources for this stuff uh, after a certain point, yeah. but um, I've been looking. <laughs> oh man, so interesting! I just like I would love to see like a a, a period film set in like eighteen eighties Albuquerque <laughs> with like wrestling in like a tent down yeah. near the railroad well, tracks. Or something that was like a that. common yeah. thing that, 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 at the uh, the fairs. They would usually have a, a place where. You could either watch two guys wrestle, or oftentimes it would be a guy who was a they would have a, a a wrestler, and then people from the crowd could challenge him. Mm. You know, and oh, so it kind of grew yeah. out of that. You yeah, know? though that probably wasn't kayfabe back then. It probably was just just straight up wrestling. If match, it were, right? yeah, like the you know, challenge, maybe rigged, but who knows? But I think yeah. I think when it was two wrestlers, they would sometimes have a you know somebody in the uh, oh, yeah. like a plant in yeah. the audience to put on a good show for oh, everybody, yeah. Yeah. kind of thing. Interesting. Man, I, I was so affected by the story of him taking care of his grandparents as a little kid. That yeah. seems wrong. Yeah, I don't think I his know. parents should have put him in that position. Well, but, not only that, those that? were his great-grandparents, oh, actually. He's, he said grandparents there, but he uh, he told me that they were actually his great-grandparents. That, uh, that tells you about... Poor kid, man. Two, two generations of absentee yeah. Uh, yeah. 
parental figure. Oh, like, that's that's serious, and a lot of people yeah. go through that kind yeah. of stuff. You know? Oh, how rough, man! You know, I mean, but it it highlights that like there's a real struggle beneath these fake struggles. That yeah. these fake struggles are avatars for something Absolutely. deeper. Absolutely. You know the. Uh, and I love what he said about never. He never just watched as a casual fan, right? You know, that's right. such a great. I mean, I just like him as from those interviews. Yeah, he's a really cool. He guy. Seems like a rad dude. Good guy. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that's like that is classic artistry. That's like yeah. you know, I I think we both as as we realized that we wanted to be writers, we should start paying attention to what we read in a different way. Right. You know what what's going on here? What's what's happening? Yeah, you know? trying to figure out this move. How did right. that work out? Right. You know, I mean, you told me some horrifying details that weren't in this about like they wrestle on broken glass and things like that. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, things that cause real pain, but like superficial ah. wounds. So they'll do things like, and this, I, I don't think uh, Destiny does this so much, although one of the r- matches that I saw was like a cage match and they came out just with blood streaming down their faces. And it's like, it's, it's real, real blood. blood. It yeah. Is really, yeah. I mean, like they, they do things to make it come more quickly. You know, like they put razor cuts in their face on their on their forehead the? so that when they get clobbered by the other guy, suddenly there's a lot of blood just flowing out of there. Oh and so blood. But it is real blood. Yeah. You know, or um, a classic move is they... Uh, they hit each other with um, with fluorescent light bulb tubes, you know, and then there's broken glass all over the bottom, so that they get all scratched up and stuff, you know. So then they're they're bleeding again, and it looks really awful, and yeah. it is actually painful. But yeah, it's that not going to cause a serious injury. Well, but um, still, who true. likes to get cut by glass? Come on, like wrestlers like love it. <laughs> Iggy Pop, man, that's crazy stuff. But it's all about the performance, right? It's all about yeah. uh, getting an effect from the audience, yeah. you know, or getting I'll, a reaction. I guess, man. It, I tell you, I wanted to hear more about Mosh Pit Mike because I've met that guy before. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he. Uh, I Where used, did you meet him? Well, I, I had tried to do stand-up comedy for a little while, and then I just oh. found the stand-up comedy scene so dispiriting here that oh, I was really? like, I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was just, you know, there were some other ex- extraneous factors at the time yeah. too. But, but um, I was getting divorced, etc. Yeah. Um, but. It was just, you know, pretty abysmal overall. People doing the same jokes they'd done since the 90s and stuff. But, but Mosh Pit Mike was doing that stuff also. He was, oh, really? he was doing comedy. And uh, I don't remember his act any. But I do remember that he was a juggalo. Yeah. And yeah, he was really into the Insane Clown Posse. And he wrestles for the Insane Clown Posse wrestling group, whatever they're weird. called. I think, yeah, I don't know what they're called. So they're there's like subcultures juggalo. within oh, subcultures. Yeah. There's overlaps of all sorts of stuff. That is yeah. so crazy. I love the line, chairs will be legal. Chairs will be legal. And they were. <laughs> Although it was interesting the way that they did it. They, um, it was kind of uh, Chekhov's gun mm. kind of thing, mm. you know, like the, the chairs were there. Oh, interesting. You know, but then they, they were constantly like kind of delaying Avoiding the use them. of the chairs, you yeah. know, and then the right. bad guy gets the chair first. How funny. And then finally at the end, Hobo Hank gets the chair and then he clobbers the other guy How and Eric funny. Bischoff, you know. Beats uh, Mike uh, Matthew Robles to the ground. It was all very you know dramatically scripted. So, did you enjoy this to the point that you would just go for fun if you saw there was a match happening one weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah I really? would actually. Huh. It's it's enjoyable. Wow. It's definitely enjoyable. I've taken a couple friends and so forth. They've loved it. That's too, cool. So. Well, you have other friends besides me. <laughs> Sorry, man. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I would definitely go. Um, <laughs> You know, I've, I've been to every match they've had since September. Right. I might give it a break now right, <laughs> with right, the right. article, but wow. no, it's definitely like a good time. It's one of the more entertaining things you can do. On a I want to. I want to see one of these. Turkey. It's really interesting. You, you need to. Everyone should go at least once. Yeah, um, uh, it's really interesting to me too because, like, 
It's so hard to get a crowd to go to anything in Albuquerque sometimes. I've been to so many shows. Yeah. I mean, you know, my girlfriend Mauro is a, is a performer, and there's so many concerts where there's like four people in the audience. Yeah, I You know, know and, yeah. and uh, like 200 people are showing up to see these yeah. people pretend to hit each other with chairs. It's you know? surprisingly <laughs> like, well attended, man. It's, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. It, it's because they know it's going to be an entertaining show with wow. good guys and bad guys and ups and downs and... Comedy. I mean, yeah. there's there's funny parts. Oh, really? You know, some of the some of the wrestlers, their gimmicks are these just outlandish kind of stereotypes wow. of hillbillies or whatever, and they yeah. do they do little uh, shtick at the beginning. You know, so you're always going to be entertained. So wild, man. <laughs> hey, what's this episode going to lead into? Have we talked about our next? I don't think we topic? have. Um, Should we pause this while we think this out? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We, so we for do... a mini episode, we're going to have one of the wrestlers or uh, or out of America. I'm not sure. Whoever's available. Is that, are we um, are we recording? Oh, we are. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. All right. All right. Sorry. So we're going to talk to them a little bit okay. more about the um, the tradition. Yeah. Of wrestling. And yeah. Kind of what the nuts and bolts are. Nice. Nice. But then after that, what about? I have this article about um, Albuquerque represented in science fiction. Oh, that's it, awesome. It, should we do that one? Yeah. Let's well, do ha- that what's one. the connection that we can find here? The struggle oh. continuing into the future. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, uh, fictional represent. Let's see. Well, it's fiction, right? Yeah, wrestling is fiction. Yeah, and these characters are fiction. In, in particular, like, I have a piece about Jack Williamson's representations of Albuquerque in his series, The League of Space. Okay. So Jack Williamson was the science fiction writer from Portales. Yeah. And um, he uh, he wrote this series of books. I think there's four books in which Albuquerque is the capital of the solar system and has a green dome over That's it. That's our rightful place in the universe. Yeah, can, yeah. You know, say. makes sense. There's a spaceport nearby. You know, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we could, we could talk about that. The struggle continuing into the future, you know, that sounds good. Yeah. Would, that, would that work? Okay. I think so. All right. Cool. And then, uh, speaking of, um, space. Yes. We have track of the moon beast coming up May 6th. You guys got to go we to this. We have Devin O'Leary. Yes. Uh, film critic for the alibi. Yeah. He's going to be uh, talking to us about how track of the moon beast was the first of Albuquerque's independent cinema. Whoa. Um, we're going to have Jeff Berg Ooh, of, uh, film historian. The book, um, I can't remember the name of the book. New Mexico Film or something New like Mexi- that, right? Yeah, The History of New Mexico Film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's going to be speaking. We're going to have Gary Kanan, uh, hopefully. Uh, he yeah. is quite old, uh, so he might not well, make it. But I think <laughs> he said he would do it. Um, he was the uh, newscaster in the movie, Track mm-hmm. of the Moon Beast. Announcing uh, that debris is falling from space. An actual newscaster yeah. from 1971, yeah. yeah. Um He's going to be there. We're yeah. going to have Mara Woody as Lady Uranium is going oh, yeah. to be playing. a Co- Covering uh, California Lady. California Lady. Yeah. And there is a chance. Frank I feel like Larrabee. a good chance a good that Frank chance, Larrabee yeah. himself, the yeah. original... Writer yeah. and singer of California Lady is going yeah. to be there as well. Yeah, I've been exchanging texts with him. It's yeah. like I, I'm, yeah. I'm getting this like excitement of a celebrity encounter, even though you know <laughs> it's <laughs> going to be great. It's going to be fun. May six, ten thirty p.m. And we're still trying to track down Alan Swain. If anyone knows him in yeah. Albuquerque, please tell him to give us a and call Johnny or Longboat. Facebook message. Oh yeah, it's my dream to find Johnny Long. I'm, I'm convinced sure he didn't dead. use his real name for it. I yeah. found a guy that I think might be him, but his last name is Salazar instead of Salah. Yeah, yeah, a Greg, yeah, a Greg Salazar. That. He lives in Colorado. I think that's who it is. Let's, but I, let's see. But I don't know. I've been I've been messaging him, but nothing so far. So it's a ten dollar yeah. entry fee, yeah. but. If you are mm-hmm. a funder of our pa- of our Patreon account, which mm-hmm. is uh, patreon.com slash city on the edge, you get in for five dollars. Wow. A mere five dollars. <laughs> 
It's a great deal. Yeah. You you can I mean, come on, this is like a burrito. You donate one dollar a yeah. month, five yeah. bucks, man. That's yeah. it. And yeah. it's that's a lot of entertainment for a, it a is. Friday night in Albuquerque. Yeah. You know, uh, it's gonna be fun. So. It's gonna be really fun. You know, I mean, I hope people are like respectful and don't jeer and stuff like that. If uh, you know people that worked on the movie are there and stuff, I, I think mean, it's okay to jeer. Do you think bit. so? I think yeah. I think that maybe there's a certain. It's a ridiculous film. It is a ridiculous and film. And I don't it's think so anybody who worked on it is under the impression that it's not a ridiculous film. It's so film. bad. Yeah, but I, ho- I hope people aren't like personally mean to the oh, people yeah. who worked on it. You know, that, that, that's all. No, you don't, know? Don't. I think California Lady is a good song. I like California you know? Lady. Actually. I think Gary Kanan did a competent job in, in his He was bit a part. great newscaster. Yeah. <laughs> he was a real newscaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Was, I think it'll be fun. We, we kind of got the best parts of the film <laughs> coming out, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be weird. I don't know that this has ever been screened on the big screen in Albuquerque. I am unaware of it. Yeah. And uh, Keith over at the Guild yeah. had not seen it on his screen. Cool. He's been running that place for cool. You know, a good decade or so. Oh, and man. Been involved in the Albuquerque yeah. film scene through Basement Films forever. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think he ever saw it before. Awesome. And if anybody had, it would be him. So. Awesome. Hey, uh, whoever's listening to this, thanks. We yeah, appreciate thank you, you being out there and listening to what we're doing <laughs> and, you know, making it so that we're not just talking to ourselves. That's really cool. And um, yeah. we'll see you next time. All right. Have a great one. See you soon. Thank you.